so we sit down with, with each other at the end of the year, Coach K and I, and he asked me straight up, you know, you've got one year left. What is it you want to do when you're done playing? Without hesitation, I want to play in the NBA. He laughed. Wow. He, I mean, he laughed a good hearty laugh. It wasn't like a, a snicker or a, or a chuckle and then it was over. He laughed for a little while, you know, and I just remember my reaction. I was so offended. I was so angry. I was so, um, you know, hurt. You watched them. You cheered for them. Maybe you booed them. You listened to them. You were impressed by them. Today, they share their favorite memories with you. It's the Give Me a Sense podcast. Here's your host, Mike Yam. Well, it's episode number three, and one of my all-time favorite people that I have ever worked with is Ala Abdullabi. We spent so many hours on the set at NBA TV. He's a first-round pick coming out of Duke, uh, played for numerous NBA teams like the Blazers, the Bucks, the Celtics, the Sixers, where he's actually one of their analysts right now. You can also catch him doing some college basketball work for, for CBS, which is always great for me to see because I'm obviously a big uh, college basketball junkie, not to mention his experiences overseas playing professionally. Uh, it is it is great to hear your voice. I was so pumped to, to even talk to you before we even started the show. Well, Mike, it's so good to be with you. Reunited after a long time uh, makes me think about good old, as you touched on, some NBA days. We did spend a lot of time together. Uh, it's good to be with you again, pal. I, I'm going to just throw this at you before we even talk anything basketball related. Bang, bang, shrimp. <laughs> bang bang shrimp over at the bonefish bonefish right yeah there is there plenty of yeah. dinners right around the corner from uh the well, nba tv to, studios yeah exactly you, you were kind enough at times to jump on my radio show and we'd get done at exactly six o'clock eastern time and that would be perfect time for the bonefish, bonefish and the bang bang, yes indeed. Yeah, a hundred percent. I still every time I hear bonefish or I, I think about some of those meals, I always think about the, the appetizer, which was a lock for the uh, for the entire group. You know, it's funny because you know I think I think people now think about NBA TV, and I, I don't know how many people are even aware, but it's sort of changed and transitioned now. Um, you know, back when we were working for him, it was the league that owned the networks. Now it's it's Turner, and so the operations are are down in Atlanta. Atlanta, but the studios used to be in New Jersey. You're a Jersey guy. I'm a Jersey guy. And I know your story and your path is is pretty unique for, for a lot of reasons. But I want to, before we even get to the Duke stuff, I want you to take me back to even how a, a guy who is Egyptian falls in love with the sport of basketball. Well, it, it didn't happen uh, initially, Mike. Uh, being Egyptian, being from uh, another country, you know, you, you, I grew up differently. Uh, I always try to describe to people that in my house uh, at nighttime was trying to, it was like being in the 1950s of Egypt. You know, it just was different. Our culture was different. Our food was different. Things up on our walls were different. We talked in a different language. Um, and then all of a sudden during the day when I was in school, I was very much an American. And I grew up also, I'm six and nine years older than my sister and brother. And so I kind of grew up alone for the most part. Didn't really have anybody in my family to hang around with. So there was a lot of times 
I remember spending trying to fit in, wanting to belong. And that's not unique for me. That's what a lot of kids want to do. They all want to wear the same jeans, have the same phones, do the same things. And I was no different. Um, the problem was, though, I didn't know how to fit in. No matter what I tried to do, I always, uh, whether or not I tried, I liked it or not, always wound up being different, looking different, just doing it differently. My name didn't help either. Uh, when we're also talking about a different time, this is the 1970s America as opposed to the 2010 and 2016 America where, you know, things have changed, people a little more politically correct. The world is more diverse around us. Um, but back then it was different. And before basketball, I played soccer like a lot of kids outside of America who were born and influenced by other countries and their cultures. I was no different. So I was the kid, Mike, who would come right before 8 o'clock. I'd get to the school and I'd bring my soccer ball and I would try to, you know, get some kids to volunteer and play with me. And I did that day in day, day over, day in and day out. And I just, it was what I loved to do. My dad and I, we used to have season tickets to the New York Cosmos back then. And you remember they played in Giant Stadium, oh, yeah. which wasn't yeah. far from where we grew up and got a chance to see Pelé, Giorgio Canalia, Franz Beckenbauer, Johan Niskins, all these great players. That was my influence growing up until I met a guy by the name of Fred Balava. He was, a, he was the fifth grade teacher at Radcliffe Elementary School in Nutley, New Jersey, my school. And his school, his homeroom, um, his classroom was across the hallway from mine. And there was no way of avoiding him. He was an assistant coach on the varsity basketball team in town. And he was about 6'5". He was a tower of a man. And, be, and I was in fifth grade back then. I wasn't nearly the height I am now. So he really hovered over the entire hallway. And because of his vantage point, you, he saw everything. He, you could not go past Mr. Balaba without him noticing. And he would always see me with the basketball and tease me because he'd say, you know, you're playing the wrong sport. A guy your height should be playing my sport. And I, would, I was petrified of the man because let's, just, let's face it, he was a coach. He wasn't, you know, smooth. He wasn't soft with me. He was very abrasive and right in my face. And that kind of threw me and very much intimidated me. So I have tried to avoid him for a long, long time. But it's hard to do if you can picture me trying to squeeze by him in a hallway to try to get to my classroom. It was an impossible task without him noticing. So eventually, Mike, the, the, the story goes where I just gave in. One day I promised that I would show up. Um, after school in our own school uh, gymnasium. Not, we didn't go to any other school. We stayed in our elementary school. And like most elementary schools, the rims are eight feet tall. They're not 10 feet tall. Um, and so anyway, the first time I went, I didn't show up. I totally blew him off. I completely flaked. But I also <laughs> remembered that I had to go by him the next morning in class <laughs> and explain myself because there was no way he was going to let me go by. Yeah. Um, whatever excuse... I tried to give him. He wasn't buying it. He insisted that I show up the next, that, that same afternoon. And I said, well, okay, I, there was nothing I can do. He said he was going to come get me from class and we were going to go. So there was no avoiding it. I'm definitely going to have to try basketball for the first time. And I don't mean to ramble on, but the, the, that afternoon he invited the captain of the basketball team, the high school basketball team, to come and play with me. Now, if you think of the context of that, I was the captain of my high school basketball team. 
And if my high school coach came to me when I was a senior and said, hey, I want you to come to this middle school and I want you to play with this fifth grader who's never played before, I would have looked at him like he was crazy. Crazy. People just don't do that. You know, that's not the norm. Um, So I look back on it and I'm thinking he must have really saw something in me because to get Dave Sieper, and I still remember the young man's name. You're very um, cool. To come and play with me that day uh, was, and I didn't understand it all. I thought it was neat that he brought somebody, but the captain of the high school basketball team, that was a bit much for me to understand at the time. And I just remember running up and down the court, walking. I didn't know how to dribble. I didn't know how to play. But I remember dunking because it was eight feet tall. And I remember being able to do that. And I just rem- remember the thrill. I, wow. got. I just remember the buzz that was in my body. He gave me the basketball. And when I walked home, it was about a mile walk back to my house. I knew my life had changed then. I didn't know, Mike, that you couldn't dribble a leather basketball on the sidewalk. By the time I got home, it was already scuffed up. And I didn't know that, <laughs> again, because this was all the things that I was doing for the first time. But um, – yeah, I remember that walk home from Radcliffe that day in fifth grade. That, wow. that was the day of my life changed. Well, how? Because how, you're what, 6'10", 6'11"? I am. I'm 6'10", yep. 6'10", because I know every time I see you and you give me yep. a hug, I feel like a small child. Um, and, and some people <laughs> who actually know me pretty well would say, well, Mike, you probably feel that way with a lot of people. But fifth grade, how tall are you? <laughs> I think I was 5'7", five, 5'8", five, which isn't short by any means. But I'm glad you said that, standing 5'8 myself. So we, we would have been eye-to-eye eye when you were in fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, well, again, uh, I blame my folks. Yeah, I, as do I, believe me. Um, but something tells me, I'm, I don't know. <laughs> you know when it rains a lot faster than, than I do. But So you're 5'8", so, you're five, eight, so you yeah, play there. Exactly, so, I'm closer to the fog. Exactly. So, so, so advance it for me, because then you obviously have an acumen for it, right? I mean, you start playing in fifth grade, you get to high school, you go to Bloomfield High School, which is not far from where I grew up, and you obviously you thrive there. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know what, Mike, whether I realize it at the moment or not, I think soccer really, really helped me. I've spoken to Patrick Ewing about this, Akeem Olajuwon about this, both guys who grew up outside of America, Patrick in Jamaica, Akeem in Nigeria. And both of them, like me, grew up with soccer first. And I think what it does, Mike, is if you can handle a soccer ball at an early age, the formative years, I think it gives you good balance and good footwork. Certainly those two guys I mentioned were known for their balance and their footwork, despite being very, very tall. So I think when I started playing the game, I wasn't the clumsy kid at at my age we're going to wind up being. In other words, I didn't look like I was going to fall over all the time when you are a person who's growing so fast every day in those young, in those young years. Um, I had the benefit of being able to have balance, knowing how to work a soccer ball with my feet went a long way for me. Um, and then it was just a matter of living in the gym, so to speak. My dad, we lived across the street from uh, Yanacaw Park in Nutley, and there was a basketball court that you can see from the porch in my house. I don't know how my parents did it, but I certainly appreciated them giving me my own basketball court. And my dad would be from his room in the library and his in the house. He could see me being out there all day long. And he used to call me the turnstile because wow. the turnstile stays and the people are the ones that come and go. And that was basically me. And at, a, at an early age, um, now they call it ADHD. 
you know, attention deficit hyperactivity. <laughs> Back then, my mom used to call it ants in my pants. I just couldn't <laughs> sit still. I needed to be outside all the time. Um, and, it, and this is what, you know, I always tease, you know, kids nowadays, millennials, who sit inside with their computers and their in their games and play all day long. We had computers. I had an Atari 2600. I had television. <laughs> it was just as new to me as it was to young kids who have the PS4 yeah. now. But, Mike, those were for rainy days. There was yeah, no yeah. way you were keeping me inside when I had a park with green grass in front of me, teasing me, tantalizing me every day. There was no way I was going to stay inside and play Defender or Ms. Pac-Man. Is the PS4? Are they up to four on that? I thought three. Oh man! I, now I'm I feeling PS4. old. Four, come on, catch up, man. I don't even have any of that stuff. I haven't played a video game in a really long time, and it's almost embarrassing because you're a few years older than I am, and you know about PS4. You own a PS4, and I didn't even know that they were up. Yeah, that's uh, especially living in in uh, the Bay Area where you know it's Silicon Valley exactly. and they got all the technology. Uh, PS4, they're up to that one. All right, so so yes, I'm glad are. you. It's funny because you bring up Olajuwon and the footwork and sort of um, understanding. It's it's funny because even you watch you know bigs that play at the high school level and even younger college athletes playing Division One basketball that haven't necessarily figured out how to play at their size just yet because of the growth spurts and where they're at. And yet you obviously, so you're a gym rat, you're out there all the time. Take me through recruiting because, I, I mean, now we know Coach K is, you know, one of the icons of, of college basketball, really basketball in general for what he's been able to accomplish with Team USA. But you had other options, too. So what was it about Mike Krzyzewski that had you head to Duke? Well, I think my mom and dad had a lot to do with it. You're, obviously, you're influenced a lot by your folks, by your environment, by your friends. Um, but my mom and dad, we made a deal in high school once we realized I was decent enough um, that the possibility of being able to go to school for free was out there. Um, and the deal was uh, because I was naive and silly enough to think that, you know, I just want to play in the NBA. Like kids, you know, that we're, we cover now in college are thinking the same thing. They think, well, one and done, I want to get there as soon as possible. That option wasn't there for me, but there was no doubt that I wanted to to play in the NBA. And my folks – my mom and dad wanted me to, to be a doctor. You know, the first kid of immigrants who come over, they're educated. They wanted to make sure that their son had a better life than them. And the only way to do that was to, in their eyes, was to guarantee a really good education. So the deal was struck where I could go to the best school possible that basketball would afford me. Um, that would also allow me a shot at playing in the NBA. And along comes Coach K. And I think he had come at the right time. In other words, he was probably there six months after the initial recruiting started. He wasn't there at the very beginning because I wasn't very good yet. Mm. Um, and I was still building a name for myself. So there were small schools, you know, the community colleges in New Jersey, perhaps a Rutgers at the time, maybe a Manhattan college, you know, smaller schools, certainly not an ACC type level at that time. And I had gotten sick of it by then, Mike. Um, because there are so many schools in that area, there's a lot of uh, contact with coaches. There's a lot of it in your face, and they want to meet you after your games. And I just remember having my junior year where, you know, we'd have a game after the game's over. I'd want to be with my friends and my family, and I'd have to meet six or seven different college coaches 10 minutes each. Um, so, wow. therefore, I really didn't have time to hang out with my friends. 
So I didn't see it all as a positive. I kind of took it as uh, something I had to put up with, but really wasn't the fun part. Plus, there was a used car salesman uh, angle or feel to it as well, you know, where coaches were just pitching you, trying to get you to come there. And I, and I just knew that I wanted to have that over as quick as possible. It wasn't appealing to me. Um, I thought it was also kind of intrusive. You know, it took away from my time of trying to be a kid in high school. Um, and so when Coach K came along, I was ready to hear something different. And he spoke to me like my dad and my mom. In other words, he was the wow. only coach who, uh, who, yeah, who, who, who didn't promise me minutes, you know, who didn't promise me, hey, you come play for me next year, you guarantee you start. He's the only guy who didn't say that to me. Um, he would say things like, you know, they, there are opportunities in front of you, but you've got to make the most of those opportunities. Um, and I can't promise you that because I don't know whether or not you will. You know, those are the kind of approaches that he would take with me. And he was so above board. In other words, you know, there haven't been any academic scandals in his 36 years there. There haven't been any NCAA violations for in his 36 years there. And that's not by accident. I'll give you a story of when we were in uh, my high school and I had a car that was being fixed. So my dad had agreed to come get me. Coach was in town. He'd watched practice and was sitting outside of, outside of the high school waiting for my dad to come. Dad forgets. Dad doesn't show up. And this is before the age of cell phones. Him and oh, I are yeah. standing on Broad Street in the, middle of, in the middle of the high school. And I look at him and I go, you know, I'm only two miles away. You know, you could easily, you know, we could just drive together, you know. And he said, nope, that's against the NCAA rules. I'll stand here with you till your dad comes, but I can't take you home. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, we're in the middle of Bloomfield, New Jersey on an April afternoon. There's nobody else. No, no one's going to know. You know, why won't you? Yeah, well, nobody's going to know. And I won't tell anybody. So like, I don't understand what the issue was. But his issue was, these are my principles. I'm not breaking them for anybody, let alone you. I'll sit here and make sure that, you know, and I'm not going dis, you know, to disregard you and leave you. I'll stay with you, but I'm not going to break the rules for you no matter what. And I remember thinking to myself, first, I didn't like it because I'm thinking, man, stop being this way. Let's just go home. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I remember thinking, man, he really means that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think of when I'm there and I'm a junior in college, he's not going to go around to any recruits in high school and say, hey, I got 35 minutes for you next year and I'll have a spot if you come and commit to Duke. So it's a negative to it, but there's also a positive on the other side because the other side is he protects his players. He's not going to promise anything to some high school kid. So the principles are there, right, from from Krzyzewski. You decide to go and play for him. Is there is he hard on you when you're there? Does he ride his players? <laughs> By the way, I, I asked that question knowing the answer to it. <laughs> exactly. Well, he's a West Point guy. Um, and he played for Coach Knight. So, and, and what I, I love to point out, too, is he's a psychology major from West Point. So you put all of those things together. Um, I'm going to say that he knows how to lead. He knows how to push. He knows how to push and get the best out of you. You're not always going to like it. Um, you're not always going to like the way he uh, talks to you as well. But the bottom line is he's going to give you the truth, and he's going to give you what you need to hear. In other words, there's going to be a lot of times when he's going to push you to do something and you may not even know that you need to do it or how to do it. 
Um, and that's what growing's all about, Mike. You know, there are plenty of times I remember sitting in his office and him challenging me, and I'm looking at him going, show me how. You know, because I honestly don't even know where you're coming from, you know? And wow. yeah. those, are, those are moments that I'll never forget because those are moments where I could feel, you know, when you come out of your comfort zone and you feel vulnerable and you don't know how the outcome is going to be, that is a situation he put me in a lot. But man, am I better off for it now? So you felt like you were prepared then for for the NBA. You go into his office. What's that conversation? Well, first of all, you must have been saying, thinking you were going to be an NBA player when you got to Duke, right? Like, hey, this is the path. This is where I want to go. How does he encourage or challenge you to go? You know what? I'll you you got some work in the. Uh, you got to get back into that gym because you're not quite there yet. Well, listen, that, that was the whole four years. <laughs> I mean, even when you are good enough, he's going to push you to be better. I remember playing with Danny Ferry at times, and he pushed them, and they were much further along as far as status, as far as accomplishments, than I was in my first three years there. But I do remember sitting down with him at the end of my junior year. We usually have a player evaluation before we kind of break for the, for the end of the school year and go to our own separate ways for a little while. He'd sit down with us. And I remember, and, and, and it never wavered for me, despite all my ups and downs and my struggles and my days in the, his doghouse um, and times when he wouldn't play me, I, I never wavered from what I wanted to do. I never hesitated from wanting to play in the NBA. And despite at times, and this is weird, and it's going to sound delusional, it's going to sound like I was in denial while it was going on, but people would tell you to your face you weren't good enough, and there was something about it, Mike, that just did not allow me to buy in. I just would not. You may think that, again, there's a psychological um, uh, evaluation to that, but it was just my maybe stubbornness, my hard-headedness, where when someone would look you dead in the face and you tell them your dream and they would laugh at you, that would motivate me more. So we sit down with, with each other at the end of the year, Coach K and I, and he asked me straight up, you know, you've got one year left. What is it you want to do when you're done playing? Without hesitation, I want to play in the NBA. He laughed. Wow. He, I mean, he laughed a good hearty laugh. It wasn't like a, a snicker or a, or a chuckle and then it was over. He laughed for a little while, you know, and I just remember my reaction. I was so offended. I was so angry. I was so, um, you know, hurt, you know, because I felt like, you know, after three years, you know, you, perhaps you should be along for the ride in this dream with me, but it didn't sound like he was. Then when I got out of the office, uh, I, I, the anger didn't subside. Uh, and my attitude started to change and think, well, you know what? Who does he think he is and how does he know what my future is going to look like? I'm in control of that. And then, you know what? I went out and I did it. Um, that summer was probably the most work I ever put into my game. I remember having classes from 8, and 10, 8 to 10 in the morning, and then I'd drive up to Oxford a half hour away because my job was a, as an apprentice at a lawyer's office, drive back down at 4.30 and lift from 5 until about 7. Then I'd drive to Raleigh from Durham and play in the Raleigh Summer League, come home around 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, go home, go to sleep, get up and do it all over again. I did that for the whole summer. But – it, you know what? It may be better. And I think I invested enough. And here's the thing about hard work and doing reps is doing reps and doing things over and over gives you confidence. But I think the other thing it does, too, when you work really hard, when you're up early in the morning, when you're the only one out there doing it, 
is when it comes time in a game when someone challenges you and wants to take something away from you, I think you remember those mornings, those sacrifices. And you say, you know what? There's no way you're taking this from me because I put in the time too. And that's what the hard work does. You don't feel it right away, but that's an accumulative effort. That's a really good thing really good lesson and it paid dividends for you because you're taken in the first round of the nba draft blazers select you your second year you matched up against the bulls in the finals that wasn't your rookie year. that was your second year right so your second year you're going up against jordan and you got drexler on your team i remember that jordan by far i mean look the conversations always especially nowadays with kobe just retiring and we're watching what steph curry is able to do and, and obviously lebron jordan by far the most talented basketball player you have ever seen because now as a broadcaster you've seen some of the the guys nowadays that have played listen lebron i'm not taking anything away from any of those guys lebron's awesome kobe's tremendous steph curry and what he's doing is unbelievable they're the best at the nba right now the way the landscape is now but the landscape back when mj was there it was different like we all know that it was a much more physical game but he would still be great in this era. In other words, people say, well, you know, how would he play defense on Steph Curry now? He couldn't touch him and grab him like he, like he used to do with opponents back in the day. And I, my retort is, well, who's going to stop him? If you yeah. can't touch Michael Jordan, can you Crap. imagine how many points he'd have? But, I mean, he'd give you 60 every night. And then the thing that makes him unique and makes him so special, and I see this because I am watching the league much closer now is Mike. He, he defended night in and night out. He yeah. gave it to you on both ends of the floor. He competed on both ends of the floor. He didn't see it as a one-sided game where you just give it to you on the offensive end of the floor. He competed on the other end. And I think that separates him from all the other guys we've talked about a little bit earlier on LeBron, Kobe, Steph, not bad defenders, not MJ though. What's that experience like though, in your second year, in the NBA, already playing in the NBA Finals. And even at that point, I mean, I think everyone knew, you know, that was uh, 92, so that's you Jordan's second title in that run. Everyone kind of knew it was getting passed to him. He was going to be be that guy. So do you almost feel like, okay, well, hey, we're having success. I'm going to be able to get back to this point again, and we got a guy like Drexler who is one of the elite players in the league? You know what? You never think you're going to get back there again. You're always trying to maximize each opportunity because, again, there's karma, the basketball gods. If you don't make the most of the opportunity presented to you, you may not get another one. I'm I'm of that belief. You have to respect each opportunity. So as a member of that Trailblazer team, being in that locker room, that was that was our approach. We figured, why not us, as opposed to – Standing aside and allowing the king to be crowned, we wanted to take that crown right off the top of his head. And I remember we played them. It's funny the things you remember. The day was March 1st, 1992. We were in Chicago playing them. The only time of the year when we come into town, because as you know, Western Conference and Eastern Conference, they're just one and ones. So we were in Chicago for that one time, and we beat them. Mm-hmm. Clyde had a tremendous game. I remember coming off the bench, helping contribute, rebound, and whatever I needed to do. But we beat them handily. And we were thinking, you know, knowing that they had just won the championship the year before, that they were probably going to be the team out of the East. We knew we were probably the team that was going to come out of the West. We drew a lot of confidence from that March 1st win. And I think that was our biggest mistake. Because (laughs) 
just lulled us into sleep. I mean, I remember sitting in that in, in the locker room prior to the game in Chicago Stadium, and I remember going through the scouting report, and the scouting report is take away MJ's drives, make him shoot the three. Back in 92, that was a sound approach. Probably. Yeah, yeah. MJ had seven threes in the first half. That was when he comes down the court shrugging at Marv Albert and yep, Magic absolutely. Johnson over the sideline because even he can't believe what he was doing. Well, we couldn't believe it either. God, I what? So, all right, you're in the finals, right? You lose a game. Take me into, you know, sort of the practice and the routine. Like, what's happening in between games in terms of conversations? You know, because I think one of the other interesting things, and you were the first guy to ever tell me this, that it can be lonely on the road if you're an NBA player. Everyone thinks about the glitz and the glamour, but, you know, at the professional level, you're in it's hotel after hotel. You're spending all these hours, you know, essentially solo. So once you get onto the practice floor, it's the NBA finals. You've lost a game here. How does the team recover from that? Well, the first thing you do is you get out there on the floor just to stretch your legs because you've been going for so long. I mean, when you're playing in June, it's your ninth month of playing basketball. Um, sometimes just getting out and, and kind of get, getting the blood to circulate is a good thing, but you're never going to run up and down. Um, you're never going to go full court five on five because what's the point right now? If you're not in shape by now, um, there, there's something wrong with you, one, and you don't want to waste any of the energy you have because, let's face it, you're coming down the stretch, you're on fumes. You don't want to waste it in shoot-arounds. You want to make sure the guys are fresh. But what you're basically doing, Mike, is you're going through walkthroughs. You're going through strategy sessions, skull sessions. You're trying to figure out matchups. What do we do when this team runs the play they love to run that they've been killing us on? we got to take away this. Do we go underneath the pick-and-roll? Do we trap it? Those are the things that are being discussed. I'm going to get you to give some advice in just a minute here before we wrap up, but it just dawned on me because you made reference to those seven threes that Jordan hit in that half. When a timeout's called and he hits the seventh and he's shrugging his shoulders, <laughs> what's what's being said? Well, I can tell you, <laughs> I can, me and Danny Ainge were sitting next to now the current Boston GM. Um, my teammate at the time, we were standing, uh, at, we were sitting next to each other. Timeout gets called. We stand up together, and both of us just—I remember looking at Clyde Drexler as he comes over, and both of us, in the same time, go, "Come on, Clyde!" As if that was going to do or change <laughs> anything, you know, or as if me or Danny could have done any better. You know what I mean? Like none of us were going to stop a guy, let alone Michael Jordan on one of the best nights of his career, if not the best night, but it was all we could do because we could kind of see, you know, championships ring rings or the chances of it slipping away. Did Clyde get, look, give you guys the dirty look? Oh, he gave us the craziest look ever. Like you guys go out there. Go ahead. You, you can you take can my do. uniform. I'll even give you 22. Yeah. <laughs> see if you can do any better. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. But again, when, when you have that helpless feeling and, and there's nothing you can do, you sometimes lash out for the irrational. That certainly was irrational. No, Well, I, I can see. I mean, Clyde was the guy on that squad. Jordan was their guy. So, yeah, Clyde, figure it out. Get a ton. Although not many people were able to, uh, to figure it out against MJ. Uh, Ali, you are, are one of the best guys to talk to about 
you know, and, and I want to have you back on the show at some point, because I didn't even I think you got some great stories about some of the bigs. You mentioned conversations with Olajuwon and and Patrick Ewing, who was one of my guys growing up as a Knicks fan. And you told me years ago, a great story oh. about Sabonis. So I, I do want to get you back on the show at a later date. But what's the advice that you give to. I don't know, that high school guy that was like you, that's got some parents that are maybe thinking, you know what, education, we want you to go down this path, but he's got the NBA uh, on his mind. What's what's the advice that you give that young player as he's evaluating his options? Well, I think the first thing, if you're if he's lucky enough, Mike, to have two good parents like I did, I think that's a huge plus. That's a great start because um, – and, and I have the good fortune of still having them with me now – and they're still the ones that I go to whenever I have a question that I don't know the answer to. Um, and I'm so blessed for that because you don't need them to take care of you anymore, but you still need them around because I know I need their wisdom. Um, so I think that's a huge start. And then I think when you have good parents like that, you've already been taught good lessons. And my only advice would be to kids nowadays that watching the trend of these millennials coming in front of us is to be patient. I think that's the first thing is don't be allergic to hard work and don't be afraid if your goal doesn't happen right away or yesterday. These things in life, and you know this, Mike, and I know it now because I've got a chance to do two things. I was talking to Jimmy Jackson the other day, and I looked at him and I said, how lucky are we? Because he's also calling games and and a broadcaster as well. And the thing out of his mouth that I'll never forget is who gets to win the lottery twice? And that's exactly what we've done. Now, that being said, we didn't just buy a card and hope or a ticket and hope that we won the lottery. We went and did something about it. And that's the thing I'm talking about, about being patient. You're going to have to work a lot alone with nobody watching and no rewards instantly. And you've got to be okay with that because the things you want, the big goals involve bringing it every day. And then once you get that goal, Your hard work's not over. In other words, you're just establishing good habits of hard work and putting your head down and being able to finish projects. That's going to be the habit that you're going to need for your whole life. So I just think patience, find out what you love and find something that you do, whether they paid you or not, because that's what you're doing. And that's what I'm doing, Mike. And I think it's worked for both of us. Yeah. Yeah, grinding is is really what it comes down to. You know, put the head down, get the work done, and and the opportunities. Absolutely, 100%. Um, Ali, you know what just also occurred to me? You played with Dominique Wilkins overseas, didn't you? I did. Nick was my teammate in Greece. He absolutely was. All right, so I just brought up a whole slew of topics. Uh, Sabonis story, <laughs> Dominique overseas. On, You're coming back on the show 100% because I am like, I, I was thinking about when I thought about doing this podcast, like who are the people that I want to have on the show? And I start thinking about the guys that I've worked with and um, guys that I haven't, but I know their stories. And I just automatically started thinking about all the stories stories that we would talk about with uh, Bang Bang Shrimp uh, at Bonefish right after we finished our shifts at NBA TV. Uh, And that one, just for whatever reason, just popped in my head. So number one, can't thank you enough for stopping by uh, on the show with us. And and number two, can't wait to get you back to tell some more stories. Mike, I can't tell you how good it is to be with you, brother. It's been a long time overdue and call anytime. Appreciate the time, my friend. Once again, absolutely awesome having Allah on the show. Looking forward to getting him on 
down the road. I, I know typically at least the last two shows I've sort of given out a stat. I, I made reference to this um, on the first show with Ronnie Lott that, you know, at the end of the show, maybe I'll give a stat. Maybe it's sports related. Maybe it's not. But I did think it's fitting with with all on the show being a Duke standout and one of those stars and one of those players that they can boast about that was drafted in the first round. I take a look at the landscape of college basketball over the last, you know, 15, 20, maybe even 30 years. Um, and from that time, from, from 87 to 2014, I saw this. Um, there, there is a, an impressive list of Duke players that have been drafted uh, to the NBA. Actually, Duke is tied with Arizona. I'm being a Pac-12 guy now. Uh, I want to throw that plug out there. But those two schools tied for having the most players overall selected at 38. But the most lottery picks have been the Duke Blue Devils um, over that span, as I made reference to from 87 through through 2014. Um, they've had 18 guys that have been taken in that lottery. North Carolina, just in case you were wondering, right behind there. And for as good as um, you know, some of those other schools have been and, and icons, like UCLA, I think, is one of those iconic brands in, in college basketball. You know, They've had 36 draft picks. Half of those guys, though, have been second-round guys. You compare that to what, obviously, Duke and Arizona has been able to, uh, to accomplish. Once again, very, very impressive, the, the job that Coach K and his program have uh, been able to do. You can understand sort of the, the method to the madness. It's worked with Allah, um, and it was great to hear some of those stories of Coach K and what he was able to do with a, a lot of his players. Got to be hard, man, to hear your coach laughing at you when, when you say that you want to go and play uh, at, at the next level. That's what happened all, but he was able to uh, to use that as motivation to get to that next level. All right, going to wrap things up here. Uh, it's a little house cleaning. Next week on the show, Pete Thamel from Sports Illustrated is going to be joining us. Really a crazy story. It's in the basketball theme. Uh, Allah made reference to his path to get to Duke. You know, a lot of players nowadays play in the AAU circuit and just how crucial that is for for exposure and and making sure that coaches know, you know, where they can go. Division one college high level coaches, you know, they're, they're dialed in on a lot of these programs. It's not exactly the most up and up scenario for for a lot of these AAU programs. There's some some teams that are that are really outstanding. But Pete Thamel from Sports Illustrated did a story a few years ago uh, about someone who was really just dominant in the AAU circuit. And it turns out that Curtis Malone is the guy that I'm referring to, not only was dominant in that injury in industry, uh, in, in, in basketball, but was dominant in another industry. And that wasn't necessarily legal. And that, of course, is drug dealing. He's in prison right now, but Pete did a great story on him. I want uh, Pete to come on the show with us. And in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to have Tony Reale on the show, uh, the host from Around the Horn. Great to have another Fordham guy in the house. If you want to send some feedback, love. I've been getting a lot of messages at Mike underscore Yam. You can hit me up on Twitter. You can follow me on my Facebook page as well. It's just Mike Yam. Continue to subscribe. Uh, let your friends know about a storytelling podcast that, that has to do with sports. Um, you can rate. You can subscribe. And of course, you can write a review. Love the feedback. Continue to keep it pouring in. Thanks again for listening.